Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and I'm here to welcome you to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple, a podcast where we celebrate the joys, the challenges, the adventure that is the English language. And we meet up every week. I say we, it's me and my friend... Susie Dent. Susie Dent. And we've come again, Susie, to your home in Oxford. Yes, thank We're you here for that. in your sitting room. I'm very pleased. I've had a good week. Uh, have you had a good week? Uh, yeah, I've had an okay week. I've been writing my book furiously because the deadline is upon me. Did I tell you what the first meaning of deadline was? I think I did. Tell me again. It was a line around a prison beyond which any prisoner trying to escape would be shot. Wow. Dead. Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty gruesome. Is that's that how, how your publishers that's treat how you? That's how it feels at the moment. Oh. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. Have you managed to avoid the coronavirus so far. Because coming on the train here to Oxford, I have to tell you, there were people on the train behind their masks, really? uh, looking anxious. Uh, I unfortunately sneezed, which was not a good thing to do <laughs> under the circumstances. What is the origin of the word coronavirus? Because it is, I hadn't heard the word uh, before Christmas. It's now gone global. Yes. Well, the thing about the coronavirus is we've had them for, I mean, it's just a whole family of viruses. The common cold is a coronavirus. Oh. So this is just a new sub type. So that probably should be quite reassuring. But you texted this question to me while on the train. So I did a bit of prep. It apparently is called the coronavirus because it recalls the solar corona. Um, so it's a characteristic appearance of these viruses. So if you look under an electron microscope, they look like they have a corona around them. And this one, this latest one is called covid 19. It's just been named. So the co is corona, the vi is virus, and the d means disease. So this is what these, this describes the symptoms that it produces. And the 19 stands for 2019. That's when it began. Yeah. Oh, mm. well, COVID-19. that's good. Now, I want to talk to you today about hobbies. Okay. One of my hobbies definitely is going to the theatre. Yeah. I go to the theatre Certainly once a week, sometimes more than once a week. Very Since I last saw you, I went to see three short plays directed by Trevor Nunn, by the famous Irish playwright who wrote mostly in French, hmm. being, I've given you enough clues. Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett. And I saw some of his plays that were very much on my Beckett list because one of them was Crap's Last Tape. Yeah. Which... Start with a K, right? And double P. Absolutely. Beckett had a sort of 
group of actors that he worked with a great deal. And he wrote Crabbe's Last Tape with one particular actor in mind called Pat- Patrick McGee, wonderful uh-huh. Irish actor, who uh, I was lucky enough to work with when I was in my 20s. He was an extraordinary Is he phenomenon. in The Avengers? Have I got completely the wrong person? That, that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? That's Patrick McNee. Oh, thank you. Um, but the same okay. sort of, they, they are, uh, their family's heralded from the Emerald Isle. Okay. Pat McGee was a very different uh, gather all to think. Okay. Um, he was a no formidable. Hatton. He was no bowler hat, no umbrella, no. He was quite rough and formidable. Steed, that's who he was, isn't it? That's right. Anyway, Pat McGee first appeared in Crap's Last Tape, and he was originally known as the McGee Monologue. It became Crap's Last Tape because there's this character called Crap in it who has got a tape recorder, and he's listening to a tape of himself in the past. Hmm. And it's quite dark and moving and funny at times. And there was another Irish actor who took the play to New York and told me that he was thrilled by the reviews that he got in New York, one of which he treasured because of the headline. The headline read, At last, the crap we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Excellent. What are your hobbies? Well, I don't, it's, it's hard because I know you have loads of them and I can't possibly compete with all your wonderful, quite different ones, shall we say. So I, I love cycling. So cycling is my go-to if I just want to get away, switch my phone off, just be at one with my head. Although I say that, I just I just suspend all my kind of worries uh, when I'm out on my back. And there's some beautiful uh, cycle routes around me. So yeah, I'd say that's my, that's my top hobby. Good. It, it's important to have passions in life mm. that take you away from your work, mm. something that sustains you, keeps you going, that just grips you. Going to the theatre is one of mine. Reading books is one of mine. Yeah, mine too. I love books. I'm currently reading, believe it or not, the diaries of Harold Macmillan. And what's fascinating is that even when he was prime minister, he was able to read at least a book a week. And earlier days, when he was the minister in charge of housing, Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was reading a hundred books a year, two a week, and big books, big Victorian history books, novels by Trollope. He really found it a wonderful way of clearing his head, mm. escaping the world. So mm. reading is good. But I'm also a great collector. I know. So this is this is what I was referring to, really, because you collect teddy bears famously. And later, I want to play a little quiz with you about what we call people who collect things. Okay. The, the names of people who collect yeah, different things. Yeah, there are hundreds things. of those. But I know you've done some specialist work. When I was a child, I enjoyed jigsaws, I enjoyed um, hopscotch, mm. and I enjoyed marbles. Mm. Oh, yeah, I used to love marbles. And there's a whole language to the world of people who play with marbles, isn't there? There is. They're called mibsters. Oh. Um, and there is a marbles championship. I remember talking to Chris Packham, the naturalist, and he went to the world championships. I think he might have been doing some journalism at the time. And he recalls being staggered because you would expect this to be quite a gentle community. But he was staggered by the blasting of horns around the car park. So the winners drove round around the car park blasting their horns because they'd won the championship. So it's very competitive and they have a tribal lexicon, which is almost second to none. Um, It's really interesting. I mean, it's the same with conkers, in fact. There's a whole lot of vocabulary attached to whether your conquerors won one game, in which case it's a oneer, and then it becomes a twoer, and then a threeer, etc. There's the king, there's the kind of illegal pickling of a chess of a conquer. Can't quite remember what that's called, but in order to harden it, so every child's game, every children's game, develops its own kind of language, which is absolutely fascinating. Give me some of the marbles lingo. Uh, so first of all, 
there's not one game. There's there's many marbles games apparently. There's cherry pit, boss out, nine holes, poison. I think the most commonly used one today is called the ringer. And they've all got their own rules. As for different types of marbles, there's the Aggie, that's made from agate. Oh, I had one of those. The Alley, that's made from alabaster. Oh, the Tor, now the Tor, T-A-W, is the large one that's used to knock out the smaller ones. And the Duck is a smaller marble knocked by the Tor. There's the Tombola, which is also called a Chini, I think, in Cheshire, which is a really large marble. There's a Stonker for another large one, which you can understand. A Deagle, which is one that's pinched from someone else's collection. In the 1800s, and you will occasionally hear this today, apparently, at the end of a game, uh, if you shout smuggins then you win the whole lot. Whoever oh. whoever shouts it first wins the whole lot. And there's well, also... Just shouting smuggins, <laughs> you suddenly win. That's at the end of the game. So I don't know if that's when it's a draw and then you have to, you have to shout that out. There's fullock, which is to shoot a marble by jerking the hand forward, which also reminds me of flirting because the very first meaning of flirt was to flick your finger rather sort of dismissively. Oh. And then it kind of moved to women who would kind of flirt with their fans. So there's a whole fan language, whereas one quick flutter meant one thing and then another double flutter meant another thing. So it was incredibly complicated fan etiquette. Yes, apparently people used to indicate with their fans whether they were ready to have a little liaison yes. or not. Yes, That they would sit in the dress circle and the gentlemen in the stalls would wave up. And if you put your fan over the edge of the uh, oh. dress circle, spread out in a certain way, it indicated what you were up for. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I don't well, know yeah, how I learned that. No, Something my father told me. Possibly, possibly uh, question that. And of course, marbles can be really beautiful as well. I used to collect oh. them just for their appearance because yes, they were just gorgeous with those lovely swirls. Um, but they were they were quality some of them are really marbles, rare. weren't there? And yes. cheap ones. Yes, so they were the, ones that you can collect. And the really. cheap ones were known, as I recall, as slags. Oh, okay. I think they were the ones that were simply, you know, mass-produced onyx yeah. marbles. Yeah, maybe a reference to the, the mines. Oh, as in it's, a slag heap. Or yeah, slag, exactly. Yeah. It's just kind of refuse. Yeah, so you get the onion skin, which is a kind of marble with all those beautiful layers, uh, layered colours. And then you get, oh, you're right, the slag is an onyx marble. I'm just looking at my book here. There's a spiri. Are you featured this in your book? Which I book did. is this? Yeah, this is Dense Modern Tribes. So this is looking at various groups of people and the different vocabularies that they have. Oh. So it's fascinating. And, you know, it's the same with, did you ever used to play jacks? I used to love jacks. Oh, yes. That was quite good at I think jacks. I love them even more. You took a handful and threw them in the air and you had to pick up some more. Yes, yeah, so you a picked ball. up one and the ball at the same time, then two, then three, and you progressed to ten. And you bounced the ball and picked up the jacks. Only one bounce. It is, it's amazing how the word jack has been applied to so many different generic objects and people. Steeplejack, lumberjack, etc. So generic, generic name for a person or a profession and then for different objects around the place as well. And then mm. we have jackal, don't we, as well? Jackal? Mm. As in day off? <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, as in fuck all, isn't it? Jackal? Oh, I didn't know I that maybe expression. Maybe I've made that up. It just sounds... I was familiar with the expression jack off, but that's a different thing <laughs> altogether. Certainly is. Help jack off his horse. So confusing. It depends where the punctuation goes. Very true. And you've written a whole book about that. That's why I know that one. Yes. Okay. So that's the world of marbles. Yes. That's the word of marbles. One of my hobbies is bird watching. This week I visited yet again the Wetlands uh, Centre near where I live in West London, in Barnes. Mm -hmm. And it had been a heavy day. I felt it had been a heavy day, silly old me. Anyway, I I went there at about two o'clock in the afternoon when they feed the otters. 
And I went and walked up by where they feed the otters, and the otters were being fed, and there was a crane watching them. And all the troubles of the world disappeared. Yeah, that's I thing. just thought, and there was this little otter collecting grass to build his nest or her nest. And I thought, well, you know, life is going on. So I meet there serious people who I know are known as twitchers. Yes. I, I'm, I don't know enough to be called a twitcher. Mm. Why are they called twitchers and what is the language of the bird watcher? Well, so twitcher apparently is one who travels around in search of rare birds, really, to add to their what they call their life list. So they're the diehards. You know, these are the people who spend hours soaked in their uh, cagoules just waiting primed for a glimpse of a shorelark, for example. With huge binoculars and great cameras that the rest of us no longer have. Now we've got iPhones. Yes. They're, they're the people, yes. No, that's absolutely right. And the adrenaline is in the chase for them. Oh. And it's not a gentle pursuit, apparently. So mm. uh, there's real competition there. Apparently, European twitchers look on the British equivalents as the most bitterly competitive of the lot. That's what I've heard. And the birders are simply enthusiasts who seek out birds to kind of learn from them and gain as much intelligence as they can. So they may not have a tick list as such, or if they do, it's more a kind of private affair rather than a competitive one. I'm a birder, so I think you're a birder. A I think yeah, I'm, I'm a birder a, as I'm well. I'm a gentle birder too. Yes. And they're the novices who are called dudes. And they inadvertently announce themselves to the world because they've got very noisy maps and they've got fluorescent green anoraks. Basically, they don't quite realise that this is all going to scare the uh, the birds away. Yeah, famously, they say they don't know their white ass from their egret. And then you've got the togs and the greenies. Togs are the bird photographers and the greenies buy all the really expensive paraphernalia, but actually don't really know what they're doing. So that's, I mean, literally that's that's kind of lexicon all to itself and the types of birder that you might get. And when you're doing your birding, yes. are there words that describe what happens, what yes. you're doing? Yes, lots. There's to dip out, that's to miss a bird that you've specifically gone to see. And I'm, I'm guessing that the twitchers are the people who really feel the pain of dipping out. Gripped off is even worse because if you're gripped off, it's a bit like being mugged off, but it's it's when other birders or other... <laughs> Moving on from jacked off to gripped off. <laughs> gripped off. It's where other people see the bird, but you don't. So that's like the worst possible outcome because everyone else can crow, excuse the pun, and, uh, and you can't. Now, there's a crippler which it's not particularly a nice word, but it's for really rare and spectacular birds. So that's the kind of pinnacle of any twitcher's career. And they are also referred to as megas. There's the blocker. That's the bird that is always elusive. And if you unblock the blocker, you finally get to see the bird that you've just been aspiring to see um, all your life. Oh my goodness. And so it goes on. Stringy. I told you this is competitive amongst twitchers. That's used of a fellow twitcher's tick list when it's considered to be slightly suspect. In other words, have they really seen all these birds? And there's a tart tick as well. So you have a tart tick on your list. That's for a really common sighting um, that actually you pick up much later than everyone else. That's the tart tick. And so it goes on. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I used to have in the days when I collected jumpers. Yes. I collect a lot of things. How many way. of them do you still have, by the way? Oh, probably... A thousand. Where do you get... Okay, I know your house is big. Well, you're, when you come to my house... Yes. Because we're going to do one of the podcasts we from are. there, I will take you into the basement. As a basement, and okay. And we may even uh, boldly tweet some photographs and you can then see where all this is stored. And my wife has told me that the moment 
I die. Before she phones the undertaker, she will be calling the skip people and all of it's going to be thrown away. But I have got down there some jumpers with various birds on and one of my favourites, I've got a range of parrots, got a lovely one with a cockatoo. Beautiful plumage. And I do remember wearing it once on TVAM in the 1980s Mm. and Anne Diamond saying, what's a lovely parrot? And Nick Owen correcting her and saying, no, it's a cockatoo. Come on, Anne, you must have seen a cockatoo in your time. Oh, I'm just pointing here. So there's a feather here yes. that uh, we brought back from a walk the other day. Oh, so it's this beautiful. Is, is it a cockatoo? Where is it from? It just, it's a really beautiful sort of fluorescent green, different shades of green, a bit of red in there. I think it might be a parakeet. What do you think? It could be a parakeet. They became prevalent in the 1950s. Right. And then many escaped. Is that Many escaped. My father always used to claim that he had started it all because he used to have, my parents used to have a parrot called... Mitu, which I think is Indian for Mm. parrot. And my father really couldn't stand the bird. It was my mother really wanted it. And the bird was allowed out of its cage because my mother didn't believe in having caged creatures. And it just flew around up there flat uh, and making a mess everywhere and eating the bindings of all the books. (laughs) So one night my father left the window deliberately open (gasps) and the parakeet flew out. And he claimed that all the parakeets you now see in London are descendants. And this exactly could well be one of Mitu's descendants. It could be a DNA check. Uh, Can I just just end with one slightly risque word in the the Twitch's world? And that's a bird has an indefinable set of characteristics. So an experienced Twitcher or bird will just know by looking at this bird. And it's called its jizz. Oh. I know, very strange. So, <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> Back to jacking know, off. This is the theme. Maybe that's what we have to call this episode. Circle. Yes. Um, so if asked, yeah, how did you know that was a whatever? They will say, we knew it by their jizz. And there's a terrible joke amongst birders that I was told when I was writing my books. It involved two ladies in a New York hide trying in vain to identify sandpipers from afar. And they ask an experienced birder for help who probably says, oh, that's what they are. They're sandpipers. And they are amazed. And when asked how he's so sure, he says that he checked out the bird's jizz. And they apparently say, well, young man, that sure must be a powerful telescope. (laughs) Terrible, (laughs) terrible joke. But on that terrible joke, should we take a break? Yes. And then we can talk about golf when we come back. Okay, let's do that. Welcome back to uh, this episode of Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles and I are talking about hobbies and the various lexicons that are attached to these hobbies, because every single one has this sometimes vast vocabulary all to itself. And, and if you probe that vocabulary just a little bit, it's absolutely fascinating. It tells you so much about the people indulging in this hobby. My father's passion in life was golf. Mm, my dad's too. Described by Mark Twain as a good walk spoiled. Yes. And golf, of course, as we know, is the word flog backwards. Ah, it's not. Never thought about that. It's not my game, but a lot of people adore it. And there is, tell us something about the language of golf. Well, first of all, the origins of the word seem to be fairly ancient. So this backronym that's been created for it, which is gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. And of course, that reflects the history because for far too long, you know, many clubs were uh, for men only and women were not allowed to not only not step on the golf course, but not step into the clubhouse itself. And that's... I know, but there's still, you know, debates have been raging on even in this century about this. Well, on the etymological level, that's completely wrong. But as I say, you know, women have been fighting for a level playing field uh, or level playing green. (laughs) Level golf course, yes. Level green for a long time. Uh, So we think it goes back to an old Norse word, which means it probably came over with the 
Vikings and their word kolf, which was a stick or a club. So that makes perfect sense. And the first record is quite interesting in the Oxford English Dictionary is from an edict that was issued by James II of Scotland. And he placed an immediate ban on golf because and football, incidentally, because he thought it was far too much of a distraction from military pursuits like archery and that kind of thing, which is what people should have been concentrating on. And there's so much history tied up with it. So it's said that Mary, Queen of Scots, was said to have a group of cadets, as they were, which gave his caddy ultimately, lift up her skirts whenever she prepared to tee off. And huge controversy when she was accused of heartlessness, you, you'll know this probably, um, when she was seen playing a game of golf just hours after the murder of her husband, Lord Darnley. I think that might be apocryphal, but certainly people uh, at the time were fairly outraged by it. I imagine it was a fairly sensationalist gossip headline. So it's been a known sport for four to five hundred years. Many, many years, yes. And unlikely people like it. I was amazed to discover not long ago that Oscar Wilde, of all people, ah, played golf. Wow. You don't picture him playing golf. No. Well, I can sort of imagine the sort of wonderful clothes that he might have worn. Yes, golfing outfit. And yeah. of course he was he was tall and he was strong. And striking. Another interesting turns of phrase for the various things you do in golf. Well, yes, of course. And I'm so sorry to kind of stick to a theme on this one, but milking the grip, uh-huh. uh, that's loosening and tightening your hand grip before taking a swing. <laughs> this is so awful. Welcome to the Jack Off episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. <laughs> I have to say, golf on the radio is the most compelling sport to listen to. I listen to Five Live, BBC Radio Five Live, and the golfing team, it's just amazing. And I, I genuinely get incredibly gripped by it. So it's so many bad puns coming this way. Right, well, a flub is a poor shot. A whiff is a complete miss of the ball. A rainmaker, I think that you'll find that in various sports, but that's a shot with a really high trajectory, really. While we're in the vulgar ones, what about a shank? A shank. Uh, that's a miss hit where you don't hit the ball with a club face, so you kind of it, it kind of comes off the wrong bit of the club. You can you can tell I'm an, not an experienced golfer. This would be totally descriptive of any shot that I made. The wrong postcode, a shot that's well struck but travels in the wrong direction. <laughs> um, there's a fried egg. That's a ball buried in a bunker, so you can only see the top half, which is quite. Oh, that's nice. I've hit a fried egg. You say yes. Um, and why, then, why do people shout four? Uh, four ahead. Look, look ahead. Oh, look before yeah, you. Look before you. A simple one. Yeah, and then you have to tread very carefully with some of the slang terms that I discovered amongst golfers. I say these slightly with my um, hands over my face. And Adolf Hitler describes two shots in the bunker. Oh, it's a bit grim, isn't it? That it's one. A bit grim. And Arthur Scargill. Good strike, bad result. Oh, a period joke there. <laughs> That's back to the wrong postcode. There is, what else have we got? Well, again, these are all quite contentious. Oh, Glenn Miller, that's quite a nice one. Made it over the water. Oh, it's that's a bit sad nice. as well, though. It is a bit Because didn't he come down, poor man, in the aeroplane? Oh. He didn't quite okay. make it over Sorry, the water. that's not a really nice one. I it's thought it nice might one. have been a song that you wrote. Forget that. <laughs> forget totally that. forget that. No, These are all very grim. But it's because you are young, you don't remember Glenn no, Miller. So tell me People about like Glenn me Miller. belong to the Glenn Miller generation. But he is a musician, right? He was a musician, he was yes. a band leader. There's he a, wrote a song there, there's, a famous, over the wall. there's a famous film that tells the story of his life with, I think, James Stewart playing Glenn Miller. But he comes to a tragic end because the aeroplane which he's flying, I think, doesn't make it over oh, the water. Oh, I'm so sorry. Or maybe it does make it over the water and then crash lands I into a mountain. I apologise in that case. Okay. That's, that's well, really not now, nice. Now, is there a word, a collective word for people who play golf? Golfers. Yes. That's probably it. Yeah. I know there are collective <laughs> words for people who are collectors. 
because yeah. I am a collector Okay, of, you are. Teddy bears. Of teddy bears. Start. Collector of jumpers is known as a sweat. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A sweat of jumper collectors. <laughs> a collector of teddy bears. What's the word for that? I know. Collector of teddy is an arctophile, isn't it? Yeah. And that's then related to the Arctic, uh, above which the great bear constellation can be seen at certain times of the year. Um, Ursa Major, the great bear. Yeah, so that's all linked. Okay, I'll do a little quiz. And if you're okay. if you're listening to this, whatever you're listening, see if you get the answer before Susie does, okay? okay? These are all people who collect things. I'm a sucrologist. Okay, I can guess that one. That's sugar. Sugar packets? I collect those little sachets Oh, Giles, honestly. Oh, I the, feel so I sorry. I began as a child sugar. doing this on the continent. I remember, yeah, we I remember would go and, they, and they would have, uh, they, they'd have uh, ones with flowers on, different flowers. They'd have clowns on, different uh, you oh, know, faces of clowns. Um, sugar, pure, white and deadly. Don't touch it. But I do collect the sachets. And I don't feel guilty because I'm taking them out of temptations away from other people. Are they people. in the basement? No. But when you come to the basement, I'll tell you... Well, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this in very quickly now because okay. then we must get on with the quiz. And I, I know we don't want too many of my old stories. But I was a friend of a lovely actor called Richard Goulden, mm. who famously played the part of Mole in Wind in the Willows, Toad oh, of Toad Hall on okay. stage for many years. He lived in Lower Sloan Street. And he was an old gentleman when I went to have lunch with him. And um, he gave some lovely pea soup at lunch. And I said, oh, this is lovely soup. And he ran out. He was in his 80s. He ran I out of the pea soup. Yeah. Came running back, waving the Swiss nor packet of pea <laughs> soup that he made out of. It was powdered soup. And he said, I'm glad you like it. And then after lunch, I promise you this is true, he took me into the kitchen and opened a cupboard where he had kept every empty Swiss nor packet no. from before the Second World War. Okay. Let me give you another one now. <laughs> Deltiologist. I have no idea. Oh, this is quite a well-known one. Uh, Deltiologist is a collector of postcards. Oh, wow. Mm. As you see, I was trying to decode that. Yeah, Delti. Okay. A voluminist. That's matchbooks. Yeah. Yeah, or matchboxes. Yeah, matchbooks yeah. or matchboxes. Yeah. Uh, this is quite a difficult one. Panna pictographists. Panna, P-A-N-N-A, P-I-C-T-A-G-R-A-F-I. P-H-I-S-T-S. I didn't know all these. I had to look them up. It's like illustrated something. It is. It's comic books. Why ah. did you, how did you get that? Well, picta and then graph. To graph is from the Greek to write. So it's people who collect. Kind of like my children used to collect all the Marvel comics. Yeah. And then we gave them away and now apparently they're enormously it's valuable. Just, my dad gave away oh. all our old annuals. I was gutted. Oh, yes. A vexillophile is somebody who's in keen on... Flags. Oh, how did you know that? You just did. You're so clever. Arenophiles. Okay, well, the word arena comes from sand because the arenas in the Roman amphitheatre were covered with sand to soak up the gladiator's blood. Correct. So anything to do with an, that? An arena file is a sand enthusiast. Wow. And I've got a small collection of sand. <laughs> oh, no. Don't you to believe? It began in 1955 when, as a little boy, <laughs> I went to the Isle of Wight. Yes. And in the Isle of Wight, they have lots of different types of sand. And yes. And you can collect them in, oh, what, in little, what, bottles. little test tubes with a cork on top. I do remember that, So yeah. I've been collecting them wherever I go. I've got sand from all over the world. Wow. Which is well, fantastic. in your own little test tubes. In my I'd own little test tubes. I'd love to see you with your little you forensic can. You can kit. see my, I've got sand from Cambodia, sand from Camber Sands. <laughs> Just a couple of more. Philatelists is well known. Yeah, stamps. Yes. Numismatist, well Coins, known. Coins, yeah. Very good. Helixophile. Helix. Uh, twisting something? something yeah. Twisting. twisting. You're right. You're but clever. But what? 
What do you do in your twist? Ah, corkscrews. A corkscrew. I gave her a little visual clue then. I was pulling the cork out of the bottle. Just one more and then we'll stop. Thalerists, F-A-L-E-R-I-S-T-S. No idea. I need to brush up on my classics, I can tell. I don't know. Somebody one. who collects medals. Ah, okay. So there were some of them you didn't know. Other things. Now other give me other words, epithets are available. Give me words that I don't know. Give me okay. our trio. Can I just say oh, something? Yes. The, 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 what my big discovery of the day, and I had no idea about this, is that you were World Monopoly champion. You haven't mentioned that as your hobby. I mean, that's incredible. No, because one of my hobbies always has been playing games. Yeah, I love, I love games. playing games. You've I, books I love about card these. games. Uh, yeah. I, I, lo- I love board games. As you know, I founded the National Scrabble Championship back yeah. in 1971. Still, still going. I'm now the president of the Association of British Scrabble Players. But I took part in the World Monopoly Championships when I was the European Monopoly yeah, you were European. Champion. Amazing. And another episode. Keep this up your sleeve. Ask me about it again and I can tell you what happened when I got to New York to take part in the World Monopoly Championships. Okay. To be discussed. Yeah. I have a lovely email here for, uh, to both of us from Brenda Matthews. The subject is, bless you. She's been enjoying our podcast regarding taxis and thought we might be interested to know of a silk hanky printed with black ink engraved from a plate engraved between 1832 and 1834 with hackney coach and cabriolet fares, regulations and acts of parliament on it. She said it's owned by Museum of London, but not part of Brenda's own huge collection of hankies and she's wondering is there a name for a collector of hankies well if there is Brenda I don't know it I think I have mentioned before on the podcast that my favorite word with a hanky for a hanky is a Victorian one and that's a snottinger and they say have you got your snottinger and your bumber shoot which was their term for an umbrella so we could call you a snot snottingologist snottingologist that's too hard or what about a, a sniffer a snifferologist. Snifferologist, that's quite good. Because you, you use your hanky. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, Brenda, I think uh, we're going to put this out to the purple people because they might well come back with something better than Giles or I um, can do. Undoubt- but thank you for your email. Purple people, if you want to communicate with us, it's purple at somethingelse.com. And another great email that's come in from, oh, I love this name, Darcy Overland. Oh, what a great um, Thank you, Darcy, for uh, emailing in. And... You have been listening to the most current podcast where we had a question about Canadian words. And you said that your province in Canada, Saskatchewan, is home to several words that sometimes cause confusion for other English speakers. And uh, each region and province has their own dialect as well. So ones that you mentioned here, Darcy, and thank you for these, gotch and gitch. I love that. That's underwear. Mm. Have you got your gotch and gitch on? Uh, A bunny hug, a hooded sweatshirt. That's quite mm-hmm. nice. Kitty corner. And we have that as well. That means diagonally. And we oh, have yes. kitty corner or cat corner as well. So that's quite an old English dialect word that might have travelled over. Why? Any idea why? The cater is, I think, related to the French quatre. So four corners. So you kind of cater cornered means it's just kind of at a diagonal. I think that's what it where it comes from. And gibbled. Broken. Uh, that's not always polite, apparently, if you say something is gibbled. Darcy comes from Saskatoon, which is a type of bush. So thank you, Darcy. That's a fantastic email. It was a great email. Uh, we've had communication, too, about my mistake the other day when we were doing the one about the, the crime and punishment. And I talked about how I'd been on a Blues and Twos mission with the police, how they'd driven me through London. I said it was something to do with the 
the lights flashing. Oh, yes. Anyway, blues and twos, it's the blue lights are flashing. Yeah. And it's the two-tone. Of the old sirens. Of the old sirens. Ah. So blues and twos, well, actually the new sirens, any old siren. So it's the blue lights flashing and two tones. And I was corrected by both Paul Winstanley and Andy Charlton. So do feel free to keep us on our toes to correct us when we get it wrong. Susie knows everything. I know nothing. That's why we work so well together. entirely not true. If you want to throw in your two cents worth, it's purple at somethingelse.com. Time now for Susie's trio. What have you got? Well, Darcy just told us about gotch and gitch for underwear. It reminded me of a fantastic old word for the discomfort of wearing new underwear. And it's shiviness. And shiv was an old word for either a kind of loose bit of thread or more likely a kind of splinter. So if it kind of feels a little bit coarse uh, down there, you've got shiviness in your underwear. Time to go commando. Well, yes, and that is something that we never have been able to find out uh, the origin of, interestingly. Oh, really? Yeah, because commandos, frankly, didn't ever go without underwear, as far as I know. But again, purple. What about the Scotch ones under their kilts? Mm, well, we can explore that. If you know the genuine origin of Go Commando uh, for not wearing any underwear, please don't send us pictures, <laughs> but do send us an email. What are the other two words? Um, you know, the sort of person that you work with who kind of ambles along, and then when people are watching and they're about to reach their destination, i.e., the office, for example, e.g., the office, they will suddenly hurry up as if they've been dashing there and just, you know, through no fault of their own, they're just running a bit late. They are scuddling. It's to run with affected haste when you're not really rushing. You're just doing it for, you know, you're being a bit of an eye servant, which is a word that I've had before. Somebody who only works hard under the gaze of their master. Mm. Yes. Finally, to razzle. I'm guilty of doing this quite a lot. To razzle is to cook something until the outside burns and then the inside is still raw. Who knew there was a word for that in English dialect? I, I razzle things all the time, cakes particularly. This is the joy of the English language. And one of the fathers of the English language, and we're one day, we're promising this, we're going to do a podcast from his London home, the great Dr. Samuel Johnson. Yes. Born in Lichfield, but came to London and created really the first popular English dictionary. He was a man of courage. And my quotation of the week comes from Dr. Samuel Johnson. Courage is the greatest of all virtues because... If you haven't courage, you may not have an opportunity to use any of the others. Oh, well, that's so true. I love that. I've not actually heard that from him before. That's it. That's why you're with me. You hear the unexpected here. You certainly do. Don't forget, please, to give us a nice review. Recommend us to a friend. We want the family of Purple People to grow, grow, grow. And uh, who who do we thank for this? We give credit to people we've never known. But anyway, (laughs) say this bit because we do always. Okay, Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett, who we do know who's sitting here with us today, with additional production from Steve Ackerman and Scully. Actually, we know them both. They're great. Smuggins! (laughs) Hehehe.